Romans 11:5 through 10. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they, so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Did I just turn? No, I hate Okay. All right. I, had, I didn't turn it on the first time. It was my fault. Uh, have you ever driven in fog this morning? So if you drove here this morning, it was uh, from up in the hills or where, Woodcrest or wherever. But I drove here at 5.30 this morning. It was really foggy. I could, I could not see very far in front. I turned on my lights and they were reflecting back in the fog and, and I started thinking uh, it's a little bit like our passage today. The passage today is a little foggy and so what did I have to do? I had to slow down, I had to concentrate a little bit uh, to, to see where I was going and then there were, came a time as I was driving down, not completely, but when the fog sort of lifted and I could actually see a little better and that's my prayer for us today that uh, as we look through this passage, a, a serious and weighty and difficult passage of Romans, that, that God will use it to lift the fog about some concepts about who He is, and that, that we can uh, continue our relationship with Him, knowing Him in a, in a fuller way. Now, now, it's not that any of what we've been looking at in Romans 9 through 11 now is flippant or light or easy. In these chapters, Paul is answering questions about why Israel, uh, God's chosen people, uh, are not being saved. Why is this happening? And there, are, there, are, there can be no more serious subject than the eternal salvation or eternal destruction of a person or of a people. And the reason for Israel's lack of salvation, seen in chapters 9 and 10, which we won't go over again today, we've been through it a number of times, but it causes Paul to address Uh, Another serious question found in the beginning of chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? This is what we looked at last week. Given that so many in Israel, the Jews, have not come to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, does this mean that God has rejected them, his people? And the immediate answer Paul gives is by no means. No, it's definitely not true that God has rejected his people Israel. Paul then in verses 1 through 6 argues this fact. He says that God has not rejected his people because there are still Jews who by his grace are being chosen for salvation. He gives two examples. First, he points to himself. God did not reject his people for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject me, Paul says. 
By His grace, He chose me and He saved me and I'm part of Israel. And second, He compares the situation of His day uh, to the situation in the days of the prophet Elijah. Elijah believed that he alone remained faithful to God among, among Israel. But in verse 4 of Romans 11, Paul gives us God's take on Elijah's situation. He's quoting from uh, first, first Kings, right? But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. As in the days of Elijah, many have turned from God to worship Baal. But by His grace, God has chosen for Himself a remnant, a people who continue to worship Him. And then Paul applies this to his day. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. In Paul's day, up to our day, God continues to choose to save a remnant by His grace. Paul's saying that God has seen to it that out of the people of Israel as a whole, some have believed in Jesus as the Messiah and have been justified. They're now saved from sin and eternal destruction. And Paul stresses that God brought about uh, this believing remnant by His grace. The remnant was chosen to be the remnant. And that choosing was by grace alone. Not, not because of anything the remnant had done. That's what verse 6 clarifies, underlines. But if it, it, but if it uh, this choosing of the remnant is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And that's Paul's argument so far. And if you were here last week, that was a summary. If you weren't, well, maybe you got that. Maybe you didn't. There's a, a lot that went into that. The fact that God continues to choose a remnant of the Jews, including himself, Paul says, to be saved by grace alone, shows that he has not rejected Israel. Now, the fact that only a remnant of Israel is being saved is a serious, weighty, difficult matter. But as we come to verses 7 through 10, everything gets bumped up a little bit. Frankly, uh, pun intended, this is a hard passage. It's hard to understand, and it's hard to accept. In fact, if I were preaching a single message, this would definitely not be a passage I would choose to preach on. My friend Jim, we met in the hall. He came, from he's, he came all the way from Texas. He says, I had to come because there's a pastor in America preaching on Romans 11. I had to be here to hear that. This passage doesn't fall nicely into any practical, topical series. It won't, you won't find uh, practical tips for a successful Christian life here in these verses. That's one of the many reasons why I believe that pastors should preach mainly through books of the Bible. Not that we can't divert a little bit and have a topic every once in a while, but I think mainly we should be going through books of the Bible, because in so doing, we're less likely to avoid these hard passages. And it's in these hard passages, passages that are hard to understand or accept or illustrate, passages that don't lend themselves to humor or clear personal application. It's in these passages that we often find a deep truth about God, about who He is, how He works in our lives. Truths, truths that may not give us uh, an immediate emotional charge, but, 
but that when meditated upon, when uh, like driving through a fog, when concentrated on and embraced will impact us at a deep level, giving us a true and fuller understanding of both God and ourselves, and thus affecting every, every area of our lives. So with that in mind, I'd exhort you, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, listen carefully, consider the weight and seriousness, the serious nature of what God has chosen to reveal in this uh, passage. And it's in verse 7 that Paul provides a foundation uh, or a summary statement so we'll begin by focusing on Romans 11.7. This verse divides into three parts. The first part declares uh, Israel's failure. Paul's just made it clear that God has not rejected his people Israel. But he's also said that in this generation, as in Elijah's, as in his generation, and, and we've seen that it continues on to our day, God has only saved a remnant. A small minority. And this is not what the Jews expected. They believed that as God's chosen people, most, if not all of them, would be saved. So Paul, knowing this, imagines their question. Okay, a remnant, a small minority is being saved, but what about Israel as a whole? And that takes us to verse 7. What then? What are you saying about Israel? And Paul answers, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What were they seeking and how did they fail to obtain it? Paul's reminding us of what he wrote in chapter 9, verses 31-32. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Israel as a whole failed to live up to the law that they pursued. They pursued righteousness through keeping of the law, and they failed like everyone would fail. And when Christ came offering them his righteousness by faith, they stumbled over him. They failed to attain uh, his righteousness because they did not believe. And instead, they continued to pursue righteousness through works. They failed to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They did not believe what Paul wrote in Romans 10.4, that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. They failed to understand that the law was given, and it was meant to reveal their need for righteousness. And to show that, that their and our in, inability to achieve righteousness ourselves. They failed to see that Christ came to, to, to end or to fulfill the law, to provide the righteousness the law couldn't for all who believed. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. They failed to obtain righteousness and thus failed to obtain salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. That's part one of verse seven. Paul then adds the elects, I, I got this is like a tongue twister the elects success the elects elects success what then israel failed to obtain what it was seeking the elect obtained it where israel as a whole failed to obtain righteousness by faith in jesus christ the elect the remnant who were chosen by god's grace to receive mercy obtained it they succeeded now that word success isn't quite right 
because their success came about through no act, no ability or personality trait of their own. Yes, they obtained righteousness, but it was through nothing of themselves. It was all because they were chosen by God's grace. And this gives us uh, some insight. This This passage is definitely about Israel. But it gives us insight into the the ideas of salvation. And and this applies to us as well. It is the elect that obtain it. They obtain righteousness, right standing with God. They obtain faith and justification and salvation. This is what Paul has said in verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a saved, a remnant chosen by grace. So he says in verse 7, the elect, the chosen, obtain it. By God's grace, they obtain righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. They obtain a place in the the remnant. They become part of this small minority. They are redeemed and justified and saved. This is true about Israel, and this is true about you and me as well. If you are saved, know this, it's not of your own doing. It's only because you're part of the elect. You were chosen by God's grace to receive His glorious mercy. But, but what about the rest? If the remnant exists because of election and sovereign grace, then what does that say about the rest? The uh, non-elect, if you will. That's what we find in part 3 of verse 7. And here is the hard part. Again, pun intended. The rest were hardened. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Well, that doesn't sound good. Couldn't we just uh, maybe adjust the wording a little bit? Because when's the last time you referred to anyone, any unsaved person, as hardened? If we uh, modern American Christians were writing this, it would probably sound something like... uh, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Those who believed obtained it, but the rest refused to believe. And you know what? That's absolutely true. And how easily Paul could have written that. How easily he could have avoided the difficult issue of God's election and God's hardening. Just like most people avoid them today. Why speak this way? Why be so controversial? Well, because clearly God wants this uh, election and hardening like everything He reveals in His Word to be part of our understanding of Him. And this is a difficult part of our understanding of Him. It's so much easier to just stick with John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His own... I mean, that's nice, and that's true. But it's not all. The fact that God wants us to see this And the fact that God loves us and wants what's best for us, I believe Paul writes this way for our good. It must be good for us to see and know the reality of election and hardening. It must be good to allow these truths to be embedded into our worldview, to impact our view of God, uh, to impact our view of ourselves, to impact our view of other people. And I think this is especially true when we think about this concept of hardening. We can be okay with election, right? What? That God chooses who, uh, who's saved. I mean, that's positive, right? But we struggle with the idea of hardening. And Paul knew that, so he continues 
by focusing on hardening. In verses 8 through 10, Paul uses three Old Testament passages, we'll mention those later, to explain hardening. These verses help us answer at least four questions. First, the first question is, who hardens? I've, I've implied it, but we'll see it here now. Throughout our study of Romans 9-11, through one of the topics we've covered several times is God's sovereignty versus human responsibility. Yes, God is sovereign over our lives, and yes, we are responsible for our own actions, our own decisions, our own choices. And we'll see that again as we talk about hardening. Because there is a hardening uh, of self that we are responsible for. We saw this in Romans chapter 9, if you remember, when Paul uses the example of Pharaoh. You remember Pharaoh? Don't have time to go into all of the Pharaoh stuff, but Pharaoh's harden, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. It says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and then later it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So both were involved. And there may be some of that implied here as well, because in reality, the truth is, uh, we are not born basically good. I know that's a thing out there that people, people want to uh, promote, but we are all born in sin, and therefore we're born with our hearts hardened to the things of God. You know what? I have an almost two-year-old grandson, and he is a sinner. You know? I love him to death. He is the, if I had a picture, I'd show, you got a picture, Mom? Grandma? Great-grandma? Great-grandma is up there. He is the cutest thing. I love him to death, but he is a sinner. You should have seen, I was trying, he was, oh my gosh. He was uh, eating and he had rice and he was just throwing the rice. And it's not a sin to throw rice, right? But, but then I said, David, stop. Quit throwing the rice. And he just kept throwing the rice. So anyway, where am I? Uh, we are born this way, okay? It's clear. If you don't, if you, if you, if, if you don't believe it, I, I don't know where you've been. We're born to rebel against God, to seek our own way, to do our own thing, to be our own God. In our natural hardened state, with no intervention from God, we will just get worse and worse. We'll choose to reject and rebel against Him every time. So that's part of this equation. But that's not the emphasis in these verses. Paul does not shy away from giving God, uh, I, I dare say the word, credit, responsibility for hardening the rest. This is implied in verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. The fact that the rest were hardened implies that the hardening comes from some external source. And since it's clear that God chooses the elect, it's natural to assume that God hardens the rest. Then in verse 8, Paul draws from both uh, Isaiah 29.10, he always takes from the Old Testament to show these things. And then from Deuteronomy 29.4, he kind of combines those, and he makes it very explicit in verse 8. He writes, God gave them, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. It was God who gave the spirit of stupor. Therefore, his hardening is an act. This hardening is an act of God upon those who are the rest, the not elected or chosen ones. So who hardens? God hardens the rest. Now the second question, so what is hardening? 
What does God do? What does God cause to happen? How does he work in the lives of the non-elect, the rest? The answer is given in verses 8 through 10. This is sort of what Paul is, main, the main question he's answering. What is hardening? It says, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. Hardening includes this spirit of stupor. That's a spirit of numbness and insensitivity resulting in spiritual blindness and deafness. They have eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. They are physically able to see and hear, but, they're, uh, but they see spiritual truths as foolish and unattractive. They, they just don't make sense to them. And then in verse 9 and 10, Paul adds to this by quoting from Psalm uh, 69, 22, 23. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. So what does that mean? I think this is a, this is a picture of hardening. We're, we're following down from verse 7 to 8 to 9. The table, a table, what do you do at a table? Most of us eat. My grandson throws rice at the table. It probably represents this table, bountiful food and the pleasures of eating. It probably stands for the simple, ordinary, good things of life. So it seems their hardness of heart includes the the misuse of food and, and other gifts of God. These good things given by God become a snare, a trap, a stumbling block. And I think this means that they fall in love with these things. The pleasures that they get in these things replace the pleasures they could have or should have in God. They're hardened to the things of God. Their physical appetites for food or sex or other worldly pleasures deadens their spiritual appetites and they lose all desire for God. Then in verse 10, Paul quoting David adds, Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Again, hardening is explained as blindness, as in verse 8, but in addition, God's hardening includes backs that are bent forever. What does that mean? This is probably, you know, so I, I don't make these things up, just so you know. I do the research. That's what you pay me for. I read the books, and I try to make sense of it, and then I bring that to you. And that was especially true here in these things. The first time I read them, I go, what? And then I read some things. Okay, that makes sense. And so, we have the table, sort of the worldly pleasures that sort of take the place of God. We go down that road and you're hardened to God and you're involved in these worldly pleasures. With this bent backs forever, uh, probably is a picture of carrying a heavy load, of doing hard work. This is uh, sort of almost the opposite of the table of pleasures becoming a trap. But that's exactly the way uh, we go back and forth. In some ways, I think, I think the, the writers, uh, the commentators sort of said, what, what does hardening look like? And then, okay, that's what these mean. Because that's what we do. We go back and forth. When we're hardened against God, our rebellion and sin is expressed either by preferring worldly pleasures to God or constructing a morality that makes our work, not God's grace, the basis of our religion and our life and our salvation. 
So bend their backs forever means uh, give them up to their self-made and self-exalting works based on their religion, usually. Let me summarize hardening this way. There are those who are hardened in such a way that they reject God in favor of worldly pleasures. That's the road, the hardening road that God takes them down. They would, uh, we would call them uh, maybe atheists or pagans or heathen. Maybe hedonist is the, the best word to describe them. They seek after pleasure as their fulfillment in life, earthly pleasures. And there are those who are hardened in such a way that they believe uh, that by their works, they're pleasing God and earning His favor. Favor. They believe that, that they deserve to be saved because of their good works. We call them uh, religious people. This would describe the hardening, uh, this would mainly describe the hardening of the Jews during the, uh, the New Testament times. Read the Gospels. They were seeking, they were hardened to Christ because they were seeking their own salvation through their works. That's what we read about in verse 9. And This would also, I believe, describe much of the hardening that we see in the church today. People who claim to be Christians but believe their salvation comes through their own works. And both the hedonist and the religiousist, the religious person, are just as hardened against God. And I'm not saying that all religious people are hardened. I'm saying that 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 word sort of describes uh, uh, what it means to seek after, to be religious, to, be, to think that because you're religious, that God will save you. So both of those describe, uh, uh, are just as hardened against God and against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel preaches, uh, no, you can't do it on your own. Quit carrying that heavy load. Let the load go. Remember Pilgrim's Progress when the, when the burden fell off his back. And it preaches, now live up to, we'll we'll get to this in a minute, live up to that calling and and quit seeking your pleasures in the things of this world, but seek your pleasures in the things of God. So John Piper uh, summarizes hardening this way. Hardening is spiritual numbness, blindness, deafness, and the turning of God's good gifts into God-replacing pleasures and God's law into self-reliant labor. Jot that down. It's good. So that's the second question. What is hardening? Now the third. When does hardening occur? The answer is seen in verse 8. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. So this hardening uh, that's happening in Paul's generation to those who are the remnant what has been happening for a long time. Paul gets this from Deuteronomy 29.4. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Moses said that 1,400 years before Paul. And Paul says it's still true. To Moses' day and to Paul's day, the hardening remains. And you can see how long it, it will remain in, in Romans 11.25. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This implies that that the hardening is not in human hands because there is a plan into the hardening. The hardening is only partial. There is a remnant and it will only last until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And we'll talk about that when we get to verse 25. 
Then Paul adds, though, in verse 26, and in this way all Israel will be saved. So God has appointed it, and God will remove it at the time He has appointed. So we've seen the who and the what and the when of hardening. Now we turn to the why. Why is there hardening? Again, verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Now to understand why the why of hardening, we need to again remember the why of election. Uh, as we saw earlier in verses 5 and 6, election, being chosen by God, is entirely by grace. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant, the saved, among uh, Israel that are chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You can't redefine grace. It's not because of who they are or what they do that the elect was chosen for salvation. It's not because of who they are or anything they've done that the elect were chosen for salvation. The non-chosen, the rest who are hardened, are not passed over because they are worse. And the chosen are not chosen because they're better. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. It would be, there would be something else involved besides the grace of God. I was not rescued from my unbelief because I'm better than any Jew or any Gentile. If you think you were, if you think there's something within you, then you nullify the grace of God. We were rescued from unbelief by God's sovereign grace alone. Now with that in mind, how do we answer the question of why the rest were hardened? Scripture describes this in two ways. One way stresses the freedom, again, and the sovereignty of God. We've seen some of that. And the other way stresses the guilt, accountability, and responsibility of humanity. First, in the act of hardening, God is sovereign and free. He's not constrained by any act, any condition of humanity. We see this, we saw this. In Romans 9, 15 and 16, God speaking, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And there's a period there. So then, He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. That's the first thing uh, we must say about the why of hardening. It's God's choice for God's purposes. And it's at this point that we struggle. We struggle to accept this this truth that's revealed about God. We may see this, uh, but dimly. It's sort of like through a fog. What is going on? And that's understandable. Since we're not privy to the depths and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. But we're not asked to understand or explain everything God does. Some people think they have to, and I think they go astray. We're commanded to trust Him. I believe that part of the reason why there are some mysteries here is to give us opportunities to trust God. He gives us plenty. Uh, Our trust is not blind. It's based on the clearly revealed nature and character of God. Revealed in Scripture and revealed in our lives when we come to know Him. We know He is righteous and He is holy and He's pure and He's true and He's loving and He's glorious and He's all-powerful. 
And therefore, we must accept and rest in this answer that like election, hardening is God's choice and for God's purposes. But there's another answer that's just as important. These two things stand in tension together. Why is there hardening? Look at one important word we skipped in verse 9. David said, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. The word retribution implies that hardening includes a punishment. The point is, uh, they deserve the snare and trap and stumbling that they experienced. Which means that hardening is God's judicial response to our sin and guilt. Hardening is deserved. It's a deserved judgment from God. Hardening is just. You see this also in Romans 11.20. Paul describes the non-remnant like this. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But for you, stand fast through faith. Here the stress is the human responsibility side of things. They were broken off, punished, hardened because of their unbelief. They deserved it, and God will hold them accountable. He will judge them for it. The elect receive mercy, and the rest receive justice. But the fact that Scripture says that we humans are responsible means, and and I give this as an application for anyone here today who has not attained righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ, you are responsible. Just as God is sovereign, you are responsible for your own hardness. And therefore, you can choose to repent. You do not have to remain blind. You today now, can turn from this hardness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn to Christ. Trust in Him for your, salv- for your righteousness. Quit pursuing uh, worldly pleasures. Quit pursuing uh, your own righteousness through works. You can trust in Him for your salvation and by grace through faith become one of God's elect. Amen? So summarizing what we've seen what we see in the Bible regarding the why of hardening. God is sovereign, and He's free to harden who He hardens. And we are responsible for our own decisions and actions. We are guilty of our, for our sinfulness and deserve retribution, punishment, and hardening. But we can also choose to repent and place our trust in Jesus Christ. We can receive God's mercy and mysteriously become one of God's elect, chosen before the foundations of the world. And this is all serious and weighty and difficult and may not be totally clear in your mind. You may, you may be even now beginning to see these things uh, a little differently, a little dimly. Maybe the fog is lifting a little bit, but I pray that God will make them bright, that He will slide that dimmer switch up so you can see them brightly because these truths are good for us to see. Good for us to understand, good for us to know, and good for us to trust. So let me conclude by specifically sharing how these truths about election and hardening are good for us. And by us, I mean the elect. I gave the application already for the non-elect. I don't know who those are. I gave the application already for those who have yet to trust in Christ. This is for us. 
who've believed, who, who, who know we've been chosen, those who put their faith in Jesus. I think we're given the truths of hardening, this truth of hardening that we might respond properly to our election. I think that's the key. So let's begin by focusing, let's end, sorry, we thought I was going to start over. <laughs> let's end by focusing on election. Because election and hardening are mysterious to us. Because they're uh, wrapped up in the sovereignty of God. We can be tempted to think, or we can be tempted to say, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. Why was I chosen? Why was I chosen? And why was he why was she hardened? We tend to dwell on our perception of randomness and injustice that some are chosen and some are hardened. When instead, I believe God would have us dwell on and rejoice in our own election. Rejoice that you were chosen and not hardened. Rejoice that you received mercy and not justice. When God, for His purposes, for His reasons, draws us to Himself, when He, when he opens our formerly blind eyes so that we can believe and trust in Him, when He enables us to love Him and treasure Him above all else, never forget all of this which happens in us, which happens to us, is not because of us. And when He, for His reasons and His purposes, passes over others and leaves them to become hard and rebellious and unbelieving, He does them no injustice. But know this, we are just as deserving of judgment as they. We are just as deserving. We, the elect, are just as deserving of judgment, of justice, as the non-elect. And it's by sheer undeserved grace that we, through faith, receive righteous righteousness and justification and salvation from God. And seeing and knowing and understanding the truth of our election should impact the way we live. It is here. Uh, the familiar saying, there but for grace go I, has its fullest meaning. The fact that due to nothing of us or in us, we are chosen and not hardened, knowing that God has made us His own, and it was grace and grace alone that did it, this should cause us, the elect, to be the humblest, most patient and kind and loving, tender-hearted, forgiving, courageous people on the earth. And to reinforce the reality of how our election should impact our lives, I want to give a, a little homework, if I, if I may. Sometime this week, I would uh, assign you, <laughs> read and meditate on 2 Peter chapter 11, verses 1 through chapter 11. There are not 11 chapters in 2 Peter. <laughs> read and meditate on, on first, 2 Peter I have it written down right here, so I don't know why I'm having trouble. First, give me a sec. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Thank you very much. I'll introduce it right now. Let me, let me give you a little 
intro to it, but my hope is that you'll spend some time this week uh, in this passage. In this passage, well, in the first four verses, the apostle lists a number of things that, that we've received by God's grace. I would call you to read those things and let God speak to you about the benefits of your election. And then, in verses 5 through 7, which we're going to put up here, I'm not going to read it, but I'm just going to list some things. Peter says, because of what God has given you, because of the benefits of your election, you should have these qualities in your life. Faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. And then in verse 10, he writes, therefore, brothers... Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these things, you will never fail. I mean, fall. I say fail every time. Peter is saying that we make our calling and our election sure by the way we live. Which does not mean we earn our election. It is by grace alone. It means our election... The fact that we're chosen by God, the fact that we're saved by grace, is confirmed by how we live. It's confirmed in our own minds and in the minds of the people in our lives. People around us can tell, that's a, that guy, I mean, they don't talk this way. They say, that's a, that's a good Christian, or that's a, they don't say, that's a elect guy, you know, that's a called guy, but, you know, you get the point. And if our lives confirm our election, we will never fall. Which does not mean we will never sin. It means that we will, you will uh, persevere to the end. You will never fall completely, not getting back up. Your call and election will be finally and fully confirmed when you see Jesus Christ face to face. And as Peter writes in the next verse, verse 11, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Oh, that God may grant us uh, to make our calling and our election sure by the way we live. By the way we live for God in faith with virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness. And by the way we treat others with brotherly affection And love, looking forward with great anticipation and joy to entering the eternal kingdom. Knowing that, knowing that our entrance into his kingdom has been richly provided to us, the elect, by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So I'd encourage you to to just spend some time, personal time this week in in those verses in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Allowing the truth of your election. I mean, dwell there for some time. You know, not that, you, not, that, not that you can't have questions about how does this, you know, why harden this person, elect this person. Okay, have those questions, but take, a, take some time, set those questions aside, and dwell with God. Allow the fact that you, a child of God, have been elected, have been chosen by grace. Allow that to penetrate you. And then allow that to impact how you live. Allow that to impact your relationship with God. How you go to Him and, and, and thank Him and rejoice in Him. And allow that to impact how you live among others, knowing that 
There but for the grace of God go I. Knowing that there is, uh, there is no difference. That God chose you by grace. Allow that ca- cause you to reach out in love to those around you. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for your amazing uh, grace. Lord, these are uh, difficult things. I fully admit uh, uh, just has to be left in your hands, this idea of who's elected and who's hardened. But Lord, I pray for myself and I pray for each of us here that we would, we would trust you in that. We would know who you are and know that you're always good and you always do what is right. And we will trust you. And Lord, that we would, we would dwell on the fact that you've chosen us, that you've taken us out of, this, uh, out of this world, Lord, that you will take us out of this world and you've, you've made us your own. Lord, help us to dwell on that. Help us to rejoice in that and, and allow that to cause us to go forth in just a new way, seeking to be a blessing to the people.